Welcome on in to the Superintendent Radio Network and episode 23 of Greens with Envy. I'm Matt Lowell, Managing Editor of Golf Course Industry Magazine, alongside the magazine's Editor-in-Chief, Guy Cipriano. This is the podcast where Guy and I talk about where we've been, who we've talked with, the things we've seen, and the things we've done. However, because we are in Northeast Ohio, and today the wind chill was probably in the single digits, a little wind whipping in off Lake Erie right into your face, chapping your cheeks, we haven't really been anywhere, and so we have a variety of other things to talk about. Guy, first off, how you doing? What's going on? I'm doing great, Matt. And yeah, it's a bit cold in here. I've taken some of my morning runs indoors to the gym, and things are going great, though, here at Golf Course Industry. We've been around the uh, the headquarters, uh, planning a lot of things out, getting a lot of things accomplished, and it's been a, at least from my perspective, a fast January. The February issue is out. It's off to the printer. It'll be online a little later this week. A lot of great features in there and a lot of practical features a uh, lot of labor and management insights, tips, tricks, that sort of thing. And we can get into that more on Beyond the Page uh, a little later in the month of February. Today, though, one last look back at 2020, and these are numbers that we have not talked about on the podcast. They've been on the website. The final 2020 national play numbers, we did our own State of the Industry Survey, obviously. We've covered that in multiple podcasts. We covered that in the January issue. But these numbers are from Golf Data Tech, the National Golf Foundation, and they are every bit as great as the numbers over the last seven or eight months. 2020, obviously not a year to remember in general, just a terrible year all around the globe. But for golf, my gosh, what a year. Do you want to dive into these guys? Yep. And before we reveal some of these numbers for those who have not heard them yet, big props to Golf Data Tech and the National Golf Foundation. They did a outstanding job in 2020 of not only updating people within the golf industry, but updating people who aren't even in the golf industry on what golf was doing throughout the course of the year. And you know, we all had those anecdotes that we would visit golf courses that were moderately busy in 2019 and in previous years. And then what we saw with our own eyes was completely different in 2020. And a lot of our readers, the golf course superintendents and assistant superintendents and other people that work on golf courses certainly noticed a lot more activity for the most part on a day-to-day basis. And those are the, the anecdotes to tell in the story of 2020 and golf data tech and the national golf foundation of did an outstanding job of putting numbers to match those anecdotes. And, yeah, for the year, the amount of golf played in the United States was 13.9% higher in 2020 compared to 2019. It's just remarkable when you consider, according to our state of the industry research, that the average golf course was closed for 22.5 days because of COVID-19. So in the spring, essentially you took two-thirds of a month away of revenue producing and play producing opportunities from golf courses. And they were able to make it up because all the people that played in the summer and then they played into the fall. And then they even played into the winter because in December uh, there was 37.3% more play across the country in 2020 compared to 2019. And a lot of it was in what we would consider cool weather States too. So just, you know, 
in Ohio, where we live, 3% more golf played in December of 2020 compared to 2019. You look at some of these other states, Illinois, 28.6% more golf in December of 2020 versus 2019. Indiana, 47.1% more golf played in the month of December. Oh, you go to the West North Central. Those people love to play golf even in a normal year, but like Kansas and Nebraska, close to 90% more golf in December of 2020 compared to December of 2019. I mean, it, it's everywhere. It's remarkable. Was, I think there was, was some great... ice golf probably being played. Probably. I mean, it was a great late fall, early winter in a lot of places. So those, those numbers really put the, the data cap on 2020. And I would say another number that should be encouraging for our readers and listeners and followers who primarily work on golf courses is golf equipment sales. So you're mm-hmm. saying, well, I work on a golf course. What, is, what does equipment really have to do with me? What, what, what are people buying new drivers or bags or, or push carts really have to do with what I do maintaining a golf course? Well, if people are spending money on equipment and spending big money on equipment, they're more apt to probably want to get a return on that investment and, and continue using that equipment in 2021. So golf equipment sales uh, had their third best year ever, and that's remarkable when you consider all the retail shutdowns in the spring. So there was $2.81 billion of golf equipment sold in 2020. Uh, the two best years was uh, 2018, $2.91 billion, and then 2017, $2.87 billion. So right in line with recent years, there was also the biggest quarter since the Great Recession, right before the Great Recession started. I think it was the second quarter in 2008 was the only other quarter where equipment sales topped a billion. They did that in the third quarter this year. So across the board, pretty great. I do wonder, and we don't have to get too much into the weeds in this, but I do wonder where the equipment was being purchased because it's in line with 2017 and 2018. Quarterly, it's it's the biggest in a dozen years and before the financial crisis and the recession. And I do wonder if a lot of it is being purchased online. And I only bring that up because you're testing out equipment less when you buy it online than if you purchase it in a pro shop or even in a golf chain store like, say, a Golf Galaxy or something like that. Well, speaking of that, Matt, I got a wild idea two weekends ago on a snowy Saturday here in Northeast Ohio. I went into some pro shops and looked at irons, and there wasn't a lot of supply where I went. Hmm. Although I did come home with a new... A new set, first time in over a decade, I have pulled the trigger on that purchase. And now I have Guy's old set in my bag in my garage. Yeah, all they need is regripped. Uh, I believe they still have a few good shots left in them. I don't think I took <laughs> away all the good shots from them, but no. And there there wasn't a lot of supply. I was pretty particular with the brand and, and model that I, I wanted, and I was able to find them, but... She doesn't know this, and she doesn't listen to the podcast. I'm looking to get my girlfriend golf clubs, and good luck trying to find women's golf clubs in a re- retail shop right now. That is something hmm. that you have to order online, and it may take a few weeks to to get them. There isn't a heck of a lot of supply out there, and this is just me anecdotally noticing what I, I've seen in golf shops here in Northeast Ohio and other places I've been to, and there aren't a lot of junior clubs out there, too, that you can just buy off the rack right now. Much like Peloton Bicycles, also not a sponsor of the show anything else jump out at you guy from the golf data tech ngf 
year-end numbers, not even maybe necessarily rounds played increases or equipment sales, but anything else that you're going to take away after eight or nine really great months of statistical information? Yeah, so only three states had less golf played in them in 2020 compared to 2019. Hawaii, 32.7% less golf, which is understandable because you need to get on an airplane to, to get to Hawaii. And a lot of people that own second and third homes there or take vacations there weren't able to do that. Uh, I feel horrible because, you know, had the opportunity three years ago to go to the big Island of Hawaii for a story and got to meet a lot of the superintendents and people that work on golf courses there. So hopefully those facilities can, you know, find ways to, to, to keep it going and at least bring some revenue in until uh, people start flocking to Hawaii again. Nevada lost 3.6% golf in 2020 compared to 2019. Makes I, sense. That's it, certainly understandable. Las Vegas was a place that did not get as many travelers coming into it in 2020. And then South Carolina, a 0.2% decrease in golf from 2020 to 2019. And I bet a lot of that, too, because I talked with some folks uh, in the Myrtle Beach area for the state of the industry, I bet a lot of that is on the coast and in those uh either tourist areas like Myrtle Beach or even in the second home areas uh, right on right on the coast. It's pretty remarkable if you think about South Carolina even coming close to breaking even. You know, just from my own experiences, uh, last April, a group of 12 friends and I were going to take a trip to Myrtle Beach. We were going to play 36 holes a day over three days. So 13 of us, you know, times that by six rounds, just each, just with – that group alone, that's close to 80 lost rounds for Myrtle Beach. And you multiply mm-hmm. that by thousands of friends' trips and family trips that did not happen. So, you know, the Myrtle Beach market was hit hard, but they also got a lot of local play, a lot more local play than usual. Right. Those courses got creative. And you, you spoke with an operator mm-hmm. of a one few. of them for, yeah. your, for your State of the Industry report. Yeah. And I think what you, you probably grasp from the, the folks that you spoke with at Tidewater and the Founders Group was that they – found ways to get people on the golf courses again, despite all the lost play they had in the spring. Well, it's exactly what you said. It's it's all the local golfers and, and trying to reach them with different deals or different tee times or anything like that, where you just, you can't rely on, like you said, the family vacations or the buddy trips or anything like that. No, so a lot of encouraging numbers, but yeah, those were the, the only three places that had a de- decrease in play in 2020 and hopefully... Uh, as, as things open up and people feel a little bit more comfortable traveling, that the markets that sort of took a hit in 2020 can get some of that surge that golf's experiencing here in 2021. We have not been to a lot of courses in the last month or so, but we have done a lot of reading. We've actually done quite a bit of uh, television watching as well. And let's start first, Guy, with TV and golf TV in general. You watch almost nothing except golf on TV. I've watched a few non-golf programs. I've gotten into WandaVision on Disney+, Plus, which is a Marvel Cinematic Universe show. Starts off with uh, homages to 1950s, 60s, and 70s sitcoms. I've started to watch Mr. Mayor, which is basically Ted Danson playing his good place character, Michael, but as a uh, billionaire, Los Angeles, who becomes mayor of Los Angeles and has to give up his home and his putting grounds on his on his uh, estate as mayor of the city but you had a, you posed a question 
on the format here. Better golf television, California or Florida swing? And th- this is interesting. You know, the, obviously the West Coast and then the Gulf Coast swings for the tour. A uh, lot of beautiful courses, a lot of beautiful television. You bring in your tablet every Thursday and Friday so you can watch in the background in the office. So I'm going to let you run here. What do you prefer? West Coast, Gulf Coast swings. Well, first, Matt, you certainly have much more diversity in what you watch on television than I do. You're you're right. I do watch a lot of those shows, but I also watch a lot of uh, We've Moved On from Paw Patrol and, and Mickey Mouse Clubhouse, but Night at the Museum, big for a four-year-old, especially one who likes capuchin monkeys. I've watched a lot of this uh, Gabby show on Netflix, which is a, a real-life girl who becomes animated and plays with uh, a, a gaggle of cats. Uh, all sorts. You're right. Very diverse interests here, uh, mostly for the, the preschool set. How about when you're flipping through and you do come across golf in the winter? What catches your eye more, what, what you see in Florida or what you see on the, the West Coast? I'm predisposed to like the California courses more, but that's just me. Here's what I would say. I watch the West Coast swing more for the courses and the Florida swing more for the competition. Now, the superintendents on both coasts do amazing jobs getting those courses to to peak and just look wonderful on TV. Uh, In fact, their work is so good that it makes a lot of us that live up north just envious of the fact that we're not on the West Coast or Florida in the winter. And it's the – we'll turn on – Tory Pines on the weekend or Pebble Beach or or PGA National or or Bay Hill, any of those courses, and think, what are we doing living up north? But we also have a lot of good quality of life things up here. But no, so that's how I would say it. The, the the West Coast swing has some incredible golf courses. You see the mountains, you see the ocean, you see the the vibrant overseeds in the desert. I mean, my favorite golf course to watch a televised tournament on and this is pretty much a major championship category to me is riviera country club mm-hmm. i love the genesis open i had a chance to attend it a few years ago during the sunday round and just walk the grounds as a spectator and it's a day i'll, I'll never forget going to riviera for the first time and i love watching uh, all the different ways those holes can be played i think architecturally it's maybe the most interesting course on television at least for what fits my eye and there's so many possibilities and 18 is just such a wonderful finishing hole it's not one of those easy par fives or easy par fours to end a tournament a lot of things can happen there on the back nine at riviera and especially on the the 18th hole and it's a great amphitheater setting unfortunately there won't be fans there and the first tee at riviera too is one of the most amazing first tees i've ever stood on that and the old white at the Greenbrier just have those you know, they're elevated tee boxes and they have views of a lot of the, the property and golf that awaits. And they're just two historic, special places engulfed. But the Florida tournaments are equally enjoyable to watch because the conditions are a bit different. You get the wind, right? I just remember last year before the PGA Tour went on its shutdown, just the wind at the Honda Classic and at the Arnold Palmer Invitational just made those tournaments super fun to, to watch because you really saw the best players in the world test it in very difficult conditions. You don't see that as much on the West Coast where the weather is a, a lot more predictable. And then you start getting 
the better fields. In March, you have a WGC event, which was played in Mexico City the last three years, which is moving to concession uh, on Florida's West Coast this year, and that'll be fascinating to see concession on TV really for, for the first time in a PGA Tour format. And then you get the players from Europe that have come over that have played in the Middle East and are making their United States debuts and getting ready for the, the Masters. So, And then, of course, the Players' Championship now at the end of March. So I think the competition's a little more intriguing when the, the events are held in Florida, but there's not as much topography on those golf courses. That they, they, they're, they're awesome places, and they make the best use of the land. And, of course, the conditions are incredible. But you know, if I'm just tuning in to, to study – golf courses i'm doing it more the west coast swing so does that make any sense to you yeah no i mean there's not a lot of uh topographical change in florida but they attract a lot more people obviously for a variety of reasons yeah and again you watch a lot more golf on television and on your tablet uh than i do it's, yeah, and, it's, it's tough to get away for a couple hours with a, a four-year-old running around the house and, and for me the the pga tour season really gets real when they get to Torrey pines and it's on it's the first CBS broadcast of the year, and it's you know Saturday, Sunday on from 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. Eastern time on, on, on CBS. That's a sign to me that, okay, the, the golf year is getting re- real at the professional level. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're already only – we're barely two months away from the Masters, which is astounding because it feels like we just had a Masters. Oh, wait, we did just have a Masters. Can you imagine being Jim Nance? So he's doing his 2021 golf debut at Torrey Bond. Pines this year. They have a new producer for the first time in over 30 years on CBS Golf. And then he accepts the old Tom Morris Award from the GCSAA in the middle of next week. And then he's doing the Super Bowl. And then he goes back to the game. Then he goes to Pebble Beach back onto the PGA Tour. And then the NCAA basketball tournament's coming up, which will be completely different this year with the whole entire thing playing being played in Indiana. And then he goes back to Augusta National. Just just imagine being him and what he's going to experience here over the next two and a half months. Bit of a bit of a run there. Anything else you want to tackle on the West Coast Gulf Coast TV swings? You know, I'm disappointed with the way the schedule played out this year, and it's understandable because they they can't go overseas. But the LPGA just had a great tournament, uh, the the Diamond Resorts Tournament of Champions was just an unbelievable showdown between Jessica Corda and Danielle Kang. And now we don't have a month until the LPGA plays again. So that's a little bit disappointing after them having such a great start to 2021 and being on NBC and having you know two of the game stars compete for a title and just shoot ridiculously low scores that, you know, it'll be a month again before we, we see those players competing. You have a book in your hands. I know you want to talk about the ever-growing golf library. I've been reading a couple non-golf books. Shocker. Uh, Before we get into this, because we're going to spend more time on golf books, but a couple of recommendations for folks. I just finished uh, Durf Back Durf's graphic novel, Kent State 1970, about the infamous events that unfolded on that campus in early May, 51 years ago. Really solid journalism. uh, Incredible writing and drawing. Uh, It is a graphic novel. Heavily, heavily recommend that one. And also, I know we have a lot of whiskey fans listening to this, just part of the culture. 
uh, and, and the nice glass, uh, either neat or on the rocks, is always welcome. Just finished recently Wright Thompson's book, Pappy Land, where he dives into his own history and also the history of uh, Pappy Van Winkle and, and spends a lot of time with that company's leader, Julian Van Winkle. Great, great read. If you're not familiar with Wright Thompson, longtime ESPN scribe, I actually met him about 16 years ago when we were both in Kansas City for a while. Wonderful guy, one of our greatest storytellers. And uh, he's written a lot about golf over the he years. Has. He, he, he actually wrote the uh, great story, Sacred Ground, which was on ESPN about 15 years ago, about the Masters, and probably most famous for his golf work. He was the one who wrote the Tiger Woods story that revealed Tiger had gone through a lot of Navy SEALs training. Have you watched the Tiger Woods documentary on HBO? I have not. I don't have HBO. I don't have any TV besides PGA Tour Live and CBS All <laughs> Access, so I haven't watched it either. Well, then we're not qualified to talk about it. Maybe we'll watch it at some point. Oh, we- I have an antenna, too, and I can watch uh, all the golf on NBC, too. Oh, there you go. So those are the, this is a non-golf book portion of the podcast, but, Guy, you've got some books, including one that is in your hands that I know you want to talk about. I've seen this on your desk. This looks really interesting. Matt, you're going to be stunned to know this. I read a non-golf book here in the month of January. I am stunned. What's the book? It's called A Walk Around the Block by Spike Carlson. All right. I saw that one on your desk too. So Spike lives in Minnesota, and he basically wrote a book about the how and why behind everything you would see when you take a walk around the neighborhood. So it goes into uh, some of the methodology methodology and infrastructure behind how you get your water to your house, how your trash is picked up, how your recycling system works, the different wildlife you might see. Well, I'm reading the book, and I really enjoy it. I breeze through it. I think it took six days, and I'm on the chapter about lawns. And this proves that you cannot get away from this industry sometimes. So (laughs) the two experts that Spike meets with to describe the science and tactics behind maintaining a home lawn are Dr. Doug Soldat Mm -hmm. and Dr. Paul Koch, two of our (laughs) turf industry friends at the University of Wisconsin. So it was great to see them contribute to such an awesome book and uh you know they're both big helps to us at golf course industry and also our lawn and landscape magazine mm-hmm. when we need to talk to a uh an expert that does a lot of research and studies the science behind turf grass maintenance especially in the upper midwest you know we give paul and doug calls frequently so it was cool to see them in the book and great attention for the uh, university of wisconsin turf program now, in terms of golf books, you have one, you've put it down, but it was in your hands. Do you want to get into this? The back nine? So, Matt, you're house hunting right now. Yeah, there's it's a seller's market. It's it's not easy to buy a house right now. Yeah, I've noticed a lot of stress in your life because of this process. Yeah. Well, this book just came out last year, written by Larry Gavrich, and it's called The Glorious Back Nine. And you're probably wondering, what could this possibly be ba- about? Well, Larry is a consultant who helps basically northerners that are getting ready to retire to, to, to find the golf course community community that they'd like to live in in the, the southeast. And it's not as easy as you think, right? You can't just you know say, hey, I'm going to retire on Wednesday, wake up on Thursday, and live in a house on a golf course in the southeast on Friday. It's quite not it's not quite that simple. Uh, I guess it would be if you if you had a insane amount of money, but for most people that are retiring, there, there's certainly budget limitations and uh, some challenges involved. So 
you know, Larry wrote an entire book about how you do this, some things that you should think about when you're going through the process. And, you know, when I read it, I always try to think of things through the prism of what we do at golf course industry. And it made me really realize the the needs of that retiring and baby boomer golfer. And, and I was thinking, well, there's a superintendent that works at every course in here, every community that Larry mentions. And, you know, we sometimes think of what superintendents need to do to bring new players to the game or different groups of players to the game or what they need to do to produce club championship invitational type conditions. And this book really made me think that they're, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of superintendents and assistant superintendents working at these uh, developments that are geared towards people owning second homes or retirement homes that are producing a product for the this increasingly growing group of people that are looking to move to other parts of the country and live on a golf course and play a lot of golf in their glory years. Hmm. So you finished this book. Oh, yeah, I finished it in like a day and a half. <laughs> okay, so... Outside of the great overview, what are some of the takeaways? Obviously, if, if folks want to read it, you don't want to ruin it for them, but what are some of the, the non-spoiler takeaways? I think you really can't do the golf home buying process by just looking on the internet. I think if, you don't, if you're not based near one of these communities in, in the warm weather area, you may want to get a consultant to help you because they can uh, pay for themselves pretty quickly in how they would help you through the process. So I think it... it you, you can't do it by internet shopping is one thing I picked up, up from it. Another thing I picked up is just he mainly focuses on the Southeast, just how many communities there are, you know, basically from Southern Virginia down to the state of Florida that have houses around them. And golf is the number one amenity that attracts people to live in those communities. So it just, it's just amazing. You know, there was this big, boom of golf development and of course everybody knows what happens with the the great recession and i i don't think we'll ever have that boom again but things are certainly picking up in the golf real estate market and you know if you're going to enter it as somebody that's retiring you may want to get somebody that knows that part of the country or those type of communities and every golf course community offers something a bit different to everyone and i think if you're a superintendent uh and you read this book, your your takeaway would be, I really need to understand the, the clientele. That's something that they don't teach you in turf school. That's something that maybe you don't even consider because you're so focused on running the crew and, and maintaining the turf and battling the weather and all the other things that a golf course superintendent has to do. But Matt, what do I tell you about our, our job? What are the three things that really our job as editors boil down to? Well, there's always be candid, be caring, and creative. Well, that's our that's our ethos at Golf Course mm -hmm. Industry. But I'll tell anyone that listens, which isn't many people, and in, in the uh, in the editorial world, is is it's know your audience, mm -hmm. give your sales team a quality product to sell, mm -hmm. and develop and support your staff and talent. Well, know your audience applies to any job, and as a golf course superintendent, if you're looking to get ahead really understand the people that are buying into the communities where you, where your golf course might be or the people that play the course because that that can really help you generate goodwill at your facility if if you know the people and what their expectations are and know them personally so i'm curious in terms of knowing the audience does larry get into a lot of the differences between 
prepping a course normally and prepping a course for say 50 55 60 65 and older well he doesn't even golfers. mention maintenance so that's just no. me going through it thinking you know th- this clientele that this book is geared towards you're people. reading it with our audience in mind yes okay and i i read almost everything with our audience and our magazine in mind so yeah i i just read through it and i, and I think if you're a golf course superintendent you could really gain something from reading this book because it gives you uh insight into the methodology behind purchasing a, a home on a golf course hmm. deep stuff huh well certainly deeper than uh, a book about whiskey and 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 family in kentucky no i'm sure that that, that stuff's pretty deep <laughs> <laughs> well that's cool again that book is uh glorious back nine how to find your dream golf home and that is in the golf course industry library i'm sure you can find it online as well yeah, Larry self-published, so you can find it on a certain huge website. I think I know what that website is. All right, we'll be back after the break with a very special meaty portion of Greens with Envy. Not talking about courses, talking about celebrities who've had a huge, huge impact on the game. Welcome back to Greens with Envy. I'm Matt Lowell. He's Guy Cipriano of Golf Course Industry Magazine, normally on the Greens with Envy podcast. Again, we talk about where we've been, courses we've played, people we've talked with, things we've done, things we've seen. It's the middle of winter. We don't get to a lot of courses, especially now with the pandemic still going along. Haven't done a whole lot of travel. But Guy posed a question to me in the office the other week, and then he posed it online what celebrity do you think has made the biggest impact on golf? And I responded immediately, and we'll get into that answer in a few minutes. And Guy got back with a different name, and it, it caught me by surprise. But before we get into those names, Guy, let's go through some of the other celebrities, more recent than those two, who've had a big effect on the game and or are huge golfers. And I've got a list and you've got a list. So let's just let's just alternate. I've you got, go first. I've got I've got Justin Timberlake. He was on my list too. Very prominent celebrity, obviously a former in sync member, uh dated Britney Spears for a while. Huge, huge, huge uh singles career as an artist, one of the great all-purpose entertainers. My wife loves him. I think he'd be a great variety show host and he's a heck of a golfer. Speaking of Justin Timberlake and boy bands, you should see Matt's hair right now. It's like he's got like he didn't even plan it this way, but it looks like it's got a non-gelled boy band great hair look right now. Oh, thank you. Uh, somebody with very different hair than me, Alice Cooper, uh, the famous rock star, especially from the seventies and eighties, still alive, still still doing well. In high school, Alice Cooper was an excellent miler, and I can't remember how fast he got, but I think he was under four thirty. But later in life, Alice Cooper. Uh, a four handicap golfer estimated that he played about 300 rounds a year. That's one way to get good. And he even wrote a book called Golf Monster, My 12 Steps to Becoming a Golf Addict. He used golf as a way to get away from alcoholism. It, it helped him uh, deal with his alcoholism and got him off booze and, and on the course. So just another way that the game can be great. I think the book alone probably has helped 
some people. Now, is he the most impactful celebrity? No, but I think that's an important thing to consider with Alice Cooper uh, helping helping other folks beat addiction. Well, because this is Greens with Envy number 23, I must mention Michael Jordan in that category. He was on my list, yep. He just recently opened his Grove 23 golf course, a Bobby Weed design in South Florida, which I believe has zoysia grass fairways. So. You had Bobby on Tartan Talks last year, I remember. Yeah, he, he spoke a little about Grove 23. But Michael Jordan also proves that even when you're done playing the sport that you're known for, you can still compete for huge money with your friends. Well, and it helps when you are a member at 12 different clubs, and Michael, a a billionaire, is uh, reportedly a member at 12 different elite private clubs. Okay, and two others that are on my list are Larry the Cable Guy and Charles Barkley, because they prove that you can absolutely suck at golf and still have a blast playing it. They golf ugly, and they've both, I think, golfed on television. And, yeah, just go out and have fun. Doesn't matter what your swing looks like. I have Clint Eastwood on my list because he is Mr. Monterey Peninsula. He owns a course, right? That's a good question. I think he does. I should know that one way or the other. A couple other celebrities who own golf courses. Willie Nelson has a nine-hole. I believe the nickname is Willie Nelson's Cut and Putt. It's got a a real name, too. Celine Dion, which I didn't realize, also owns a golf course, which I think it's in La Mirage out in California. This is the last one on my list because we don't want to give too many names. But this middle-aged man is getting ready to play in what will probably be one of the most (laughs) watched sporting events of all time. Mm. Tom Brady and not only is Tom Brady known as a celebrity golfer, but he might be the most famous person to ever work golf course maintenance. He was on the maintenance crew at the University of Michigan golf course during his college days. And, of course, uh, former NFL quarterback and and now somebody who's calling some of Brady's games is, is Tony Romo, also a pretty noted golfer. And if you talk about people, don't get me started on Tony Romo though getting exemptions into PGA Tour and Corn Ferry tournaments. This podcast might turn ugly if I go on a rant about that topic. <laughs> if we talk about folks who worked on a golf course, he didn't work maintenance, but the actor Michael Fassbender, who was in Three Hundred and a bunch of other movies, who what I expected that from guy. He knows nothing <laughs> about pop culture. Uh, I, he caddied, and there were other celebrities who caddied, but I bring him up because Michael Fassbender caddied at Killarney Golf Club in Ireland, which I thought was pretty cool. A couple other big-name celebrity golfers before we get to really, I think, our big three. Uh, Samuel Jackson plays twice a week. He once had a six handicap. Dennis Quaid once had a one handicap, and in 2005, Golf Digest named him the top Hollywood golfer. Uh, You've got uh, John Smoltz who Tiger once said was the best non-PGA golfer he's ever seen. More recently, Steph Curry, pretty good celebrity golfer. Also someone that should have never been allowed into PGA Tour-sanctioned tournaments. Well, correct. Kenny G, the musician, once shot a 67 at Riviera, which is just mind-blowing. And we don't need to get political, but every president since William Howard Taft, so every president over the last 112 years has golfed except for Jimmy Carter, Harry Truman, and Herbert Hoover, and while he was in office, obviously, FDR, 
because FDR stricken with polio. FDR, before he had polio, was a tremendous golfer. So literally every president, except for those three, Carter, Truman, Hoover, golfed regularly, and every one except for those three and FDR golfed regularly while they were in office. Okay, because he went down the gopher hole known as politics, I'll bring up one other name, Condoleezza Rice. Should be the NFL commissioner. She should be the—imagine if she became the new LPGA commissioner or executive cool. director of the United States Golf Association. Those are two open jobs right now that she is certainly more than qualified for. That would be cool. The big three, though. We have five. So the big five, you want me to start, Matt? Sure. We'll start with this one, and I'm not even sure he should be in the big five the more I think about it. He's in the World Golf Hall of Fame, but Bing Crosby, obviously best known for starting the Clambake, which the Clambake did not start in the, the Monterey Peninsula area. It started at Rancho Santa Fe Country Club in San Diego, which I had a chance to visit in 2014, one of the great Southern California golf courses that you don't hear much about but Bing Crosby was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 1978 he was the British he competed in the British and the U.S. Amateur so Bing was definitely a uh, stick he was the five-time club champion at Lakeside Country Club obviously best known for bringing a ton of celebrities together for an annual PGA Tour tournament and his son, Nathaniel, was the 1981 U.S. Amateur champ. So that that's Bing Crosby. And before you move on from Bing Crosby, one really, really fun fact about Bing Crosby. Some of our listeners of a certain age might remember the fictional detective Columbo, played for decades by Peter Falk. Ah, just one more thing. So when the creators of Columbo, uh, Richard Levinson and William Link, were trying to cast the character from the original theater production for TV, and this would have been in the, I think, 70s, late 60s, early 70s, their first choice was not Peter Falk. Their first choice was Bing Crosby. And can you imagine Bing Crosby as that rumpled detective Columbo? Probably not. Bing Crosby... I can't imagine Bing Crosby doing anything about other than golf, because that's all I know him for. But Bing Crosby could have been Columbo, except he did not want to commit to shooting 90-minute to two-hour television movies every few weeks, he thought the demands of shooting what amounted to a television series would impinge on his time on the links. And so he essentially said, I would love to play Columbo, but I would love to play golf more. And so Bing Crosby gave up being Columbo to play golf. Okay, we're going to move on to the one that Matt Number has been, two. been waiting to talk about for the last 40 minutes. <laughs> Matt had a chance to write about a movie that this actor starred in last year. It's the most excited I maybe have ever seen a co-worker to work on a story. Take it away from here, Matt. Well, probably my favorite actor, uh, one of my favorite entertainers in general, is Bill Murray, William James Murray. And I did write a story last year about one of his more famous creations, uh, Carl Spackler from Caddyshack. There's so many different ways that Bill Murray has impacted golf. He is not a great golfer, but he's not a hacker. He doesn't have an ugly swing like Larry the Cable Guy or Charles Barkley. But at the same time, he goes out to uh, the, the, the Pebble Beach Pro-Am, and he'll just wear the most ridiculous clothing 
He will throw an old woman into a bunker. He will literally kiss babies. He will have all these perfect comedic moments for on-course and television. And I feel like that champions the game, and that makes the game accessible. Now, he plays a lot of private courses as well, but he grew up in Chicagoland uh, across the street from a convent. And I learned this when I talked with his youngest brother, Joel, last summer for the story. There was a 400-acre convent right across the street. All the Murray brothers would go across the street and just hit golf balls to the point where they all caddied in high school. I think three of them were in Caddyshack, uh, including Brian Doyle Murray, who played Lou Loomis. And later in life, they obviously have gone on to start William Murray Golf, which is a golf apparel company. I own a shirt and a jacket. It's one of my favorite warm weather jackets. And, and I have a cap from them as well. And I talked with Brandon Barrett for the story, uh, the Carl Quandry, which was in our July issue about Carl Spackler and whether Carl Spackler was good for the game, and by extension, whether Bill Murray is good for the game. And and I'm pretty biased. I think Bill Murray is great for the game. But Brandon had a few quotes, and I don't think all of these got into the story. Where does Brandon work? Brandon is the president and co-founder of William Murray Golf. Ah, okay. Yeah. So Brandon had a few great quotes that, that didn't make it into the story. These are a few of them. Would you hire Carl Spackler? You kind of have to think how he was hired in the movie, right? What kind of interview process did he go through? What did he bring to the table? Did he become like that when he was on the job? Or was he like that when he came in? Brandon also said, I don't think anybody who plays golf seriously, or even to the point where they call themselves a golfer, doesn't think that the superintendent has the most important job at the club or at the municipal course. Carl Spackler bringing to light the idea that it could be somewhat not so serious, but at the same time still has that passion and creativity to build and maintain something unique is what people focus on. Um, So that's Brandon Barrett, president and co-founder of William Murray Golf, works with all the Murray brothers, Bill Murray and his five brothers, uh, on that apparel line. But they, they get it. You know, they don't push Carl Spackler down the throats of customers. There are a few items, like the, the Carl bucket hat, but not everything is Caddyshack related. Uh, the Murray brothers also do own the Caddyshack restaurant uh, down in Florida. I ate at it two years ago. And so I think, like, between the movie, the golf apparel, and then just playing the game regularly. And I had multiple superintendents tell me in the course of reporting that story that Bill Murray, and I don't even think they were superintendents at the time. I think they may have just worked on the crew or they were assistants. Bill Murray approached them, and when he found out that they were on the maintenance crew, he shook their hands and thanked them for what they did. And that, that's that's who Bill Murray is. For that reason, Bill Murray, maybe not the most impactful celebrity golfer, but certainly on the Mount Rushmore of celebrity golfers. Okay, because Bill Murray is from the Chicago area. Mm-hmm. We are going to move on next to somebody who has a golf course named after him on the south side of Chicago. Any guesses? Hmm. I should remember, but I was only seven when I moved away. Well, there's a municipal course called Joe Lewis, the Ah. Champ Golf Course in Riverdale, Illinois, which is on the south side of Chicago. So Joe Lewis is obviously best known for fighting inside the ring, but he also did a lot of fighting outside of the ring. And one of the things that he really fought for over the course of decades 
in the 40s, 50s, and 60s was opportunities for African-American golfers. Joe was a heck of a player himself. He was a low single-digit handicap. In fact, he was the first African-American to ever play in a PGA-sanctioned tour event. He received a sponsor's exemption from Chevrolet to play in the 1952 San Diego Open. But, you know, throughout the course of the, the 40s, 50s, and 60s, Joe did an incredible amount of things to push towards African-Americans getting more opportunities to play in professional golf tournaments. You know, in, in 1941, there was the Joe Lewis Open in Detroit, and he paid for competitors who couldn't afford entry into the tournament and paid for their transportation. In 1948? 41. 41? Yeah. So we're like, we're even, this is... So 11 years yeah. before he played in a PGA event. Wow. I mean, you're, you're just five years removed from Jesse Owens at the, at the, at the Berlin Olympics there. That's amazing. Uh, and then in you know, 1961, the, the PGA ends its Caucasian-only clause, and Joe Lewis was one of the biggest fighters to, hmm. to end that clause. You know, there, there were a lot of great golfers during that era who unfortunately did not get the opportunities until that clause was removed to compete at the highest level as much as they should. I mean, you think about some of the people that Joe Lewis's efforts helped. Uh, Ted Rhodes, Charlie Sifford, Yurl mm -hmm. Clark, Bill Spiller, the great Bill Spiller, Howard Wheeler, you know, some of those players were maybe past their prime in 1961, unfortunately, but some of those were still able to play in some events after that. And then, uh, you know, just Joe always loved the game, was always promoting it. I mean, he would go and uh, do his training for big fights and sneak off and play golf courses all across the United <laughs> States near his training camp. Uh, later in life, he was a, a greeter for Caesars in Las Vegas. It's kind of a sad story if you read about the end of Joe Lewis's mm -hmm. life. But when he was in Las Vegas, too, he played a, a tremendous amount of golf with a lot of different people. So, you know, Joe Lewis is maybe one of those people who posthumously don't get the recognition they deserve for advancing the game of golf. No, because you hear about Bill Murray, you hear about uh, some of the folks we'll talk about here in a minute, but Joe Lewis has not talked a lot maybe in, in golf-centric circles, but certainly not outside the game, really. Can you imagine how small the golf club must have looked in Joe Lewis's hand? <laughs> or the golf ball when he's picking it up out of the cup. No, just, uh, just a tremendous athlete involved in some of the, the biggest sporting events of the 20th century and uh, certainly advanced the game that we all love and there gave people who struggled to get opportunities opportunities to compete, especially at the highest level eventually. That's a big one. Okay, we'll move on to one who used to have arguably the biggest women's tournament named after her, Dinah Shore. Dinah Shore. And so Dinah Shore, when you asked me who I thought the biggest, most impactful celebrity golfer was, I, I very quickly responded with who we'll get to in a few minutes and who was the overwhelming favorite among our Twitter response. I think it was 80%. But you came up with Dinah Shore, and I'm very curious what sets Dinah Shore apart really as, as one of the big five and maybe one of the big two or three in your mind. So she didn't start playing golf until she was 52, Wow! which that's inspirational in and of itself because it proves that you don't have to – this isn't a game that you have to pick up when you're eight or nine years old or when you're a teenager. It's something that you could pick up later in life and, and have a, a tremendous amount of enjoyment and fulfillment about it and really, Matt, I 
struggle to think of female celebrities that played golf before Dinosaur. I really can't think of any. So an incredibly popular actress here picks up the game at age 52, and maybe that's the first mention or notice a lot of females took of the game of golf when she started hmm. playing using you know her incredible influence and reach at that time to expose people to a wonderful game that maybe they just did not know existed or that that you know even people from their gender could play at any point in their life so she exposed it to a you know probably millions of people that never thought of golf as something that they could do and then you look on the professional side i mean like i said it's arguably the the biggest women's tournament it's called the ana inspiration now but from 1972 to 1999 the major championship that's played in the coachella valley of california was named after Dinah Shore, and you think of some of the greatest moments in female golf history, they've happened at that tournament. And, you know, in my mind, it might be the greatest tradition in professional golf is when the winner of the NA Inspiration jumps into Poppy's Pond on the 18th hole at Mission Hills Country Club there in the Coachella Valley after uh, the tournament ends. That tradition started in 1988. Amy Alcott jumped into the pond and then Three years later, Dinah Shore jumped into the pond, too. So you just think about the reach that she had and, and what her name did to build that tournament and the people who never considered playing golf or thought that golf could be for them uh, rethought golf after she got involved in it late in life. So just an incredible impact there uh, by Dinah Shore. And uh, elected to the LPGA Hall of Fame in 1994, about a month after her death, honorary member. Yeah, and World Golf Hall of Fame, too. And And a winner, much like the next person that we'll talk about, uh, just before her death, uh, she was the 1993 recipient of the Old Tom Morris Award. And was she the first female recipient of the Old Tom Morris Award? 1993. The other thing to keep keep in mind as I I look this up, uh, so she was born in 19, I think, 16. So she was 52 in 1968. 1968. Think about women's sports in general at that point. I think college basketball, maybe in the 50s, maybe in the early 60s, was still a six-on-six game for women where there were three front court and three back court players. And so it was essentially two different teams of three-on-three. You could not cross half court because it was too strenuous. Uh, the Boston Marathon didn't allow women until about that point, and, and uh, Roberta Gibb was tackled. Um, when when she finished running the race, uh, women's sports in general just were frowned upon because of what people thought, mostly men in, in power thought, it would do to their bodies. You know, I mean, outside of, of uh, the All-American Girls Professional Baseball League, memorialized in a league of their own in the 40s, there were very few athletic opportunities uh, for women. So Dinah Shore in the 60s, uh, not just a golf trailblazer, not just a... Uh, women in golf trailblazer, but really just a women in sports trailblazer as well. Uh, looking up uh, old Tom Morris award winners, Patty Berg won in 1986. She was the first president of the LPGA. She was the fourth person to win it. And then Dinah Shore was the second in 1993. Just right. imagine, in 1991, she jumps into Poppy's Pond. She was 75 years old when she did that. Yeah, and and even since then, 
uh, and I apologize if I'm missing anybody, but it looks like only Judy Rankin in 2010, Annika Sorenstam in 2014, and then um, Renee Powell as part of the Powell family who got it collectively uh, in 2019. I think that's it in terms of women winning the old Tom Morris Award. What year did Pete Dye win it? Oh, and Nancy Lopez. I missed Nancy Lopez in 2000. And what year did Pete Dye win it, and was Alice part of it? That award too. Uh, it doesn't look like Alice won it. Pete Dye won it in two thousand three. Well, any award that Pete Dye's won certainly has Alice in it too. Even though she may not officially be on the name of many of those awards. Correct. I mean, it's essentially Pete and Alice Dye, even if it's Pete and name only. Okay, so let's go to the the last one. This is the one that was the overwhelming majority on my little Twitter poll. Bob Hope. Bob Hope. Uh, where do we start with Bob Hope? Let's start more or less chronologically. Uh, he did not take up the game until he was in his 30s. And by 1951, he played in the British Amateur. He was a four handicapper. He lost in the first round 2-1. and one, And continued to play year after year, decade after decade. By 1965, he had put his name on as the host and sponsor, along with Chrysler, of the old Palm Springs Desert Classic. And over the next, what, almost 40 years? Yeah, till 2011. Well, but he died in 2003, so from 1965 until his death 38 years later, uh, that event raised, I think, almost $40 million for various charities, so almost a million dollars a year. And a lot of that was in 60s and 70s money, so factor for inflation. If that had been done today, you're probably looking at close to $100 million raised for charity. That's huge. Um, put together some of the great, great events. Guy, do you want to talk about the time he had three presidents in the same foursome and he was still probably the biggest star? Yeah, 1995. Can you believe this actually happened? The more you think about it... No, it's insane. The more incredible it is. So at Bermuda Dunes Country Club, which is one of the courses that hosted uh, the Bob Hope Chrysler Classic for a long time, there was a Wednesday Pro-Am fivesome, I guess, Bob Hope was in it. Gerald Ford was in it. George H.W. Bush was in it. And Bill Clinton was in it. Oh, and there was a PGA Tour player in it. Do you care to guess who that was? Who was that? I don't remember. It was Scott Hoke. He was the 1994 champion of the Bob Hope Chrysler Classic. Could you imagine being Scott Hoke in that group? Well, can you imagine being one of the presidents having to play in that round and having to record your real score because it was televised and i think they all three went over 100 i think they may have all three gone over 110 in fact yeah i don't i don't even know if score mattered that day no also you know i've been to bermuda dunes country club i've toured the golf course and the whole time i'm touring it i'm obviously looking at what i have to for the golf course industry story i'm working on but i'm also thinking what was it i can't imagine what it was like trying to to get all the Secret Service and other security personnel in there just to move that group around the golf course. Yeah. If you go throughout the rest of his golf career... Uh, oh, and Bob Hope was by far the most popular person in oh. that fivesome. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, Bob Hope wrote 12 books, including... Uh, we, we talked about Alice Cooper's book um, and, and how he basically replaced one addiction with another. Bob Hope, 1985... Uh, I'm sure some of our readers have this in their golf book collection. Confessions of a Hooker. What a great title. My lifelong love affair with golf. Uh, wrote 
also another book called, uh, or maybe this was a video, Shanks for the Memories, a play on his famous Thanks for the Memories. So many great one-liners about golf. Uh, he once said that entertainment is just a sideline. I tell jokes to pay my greens fees. Uh, because he golfed all over the world, Bob Hope once said, I've played all over the world, which means there isn't a country with a course in which I haven't three-putted. He's got some other really, really good ones. Uh, this is all from his obituary, written by Richard Urban. It's up on ESPN.com still. I love this one. It's wonderful how you can start out with three strangers in the morning, play 18 holes, and by the time the day is over, you have three solid enemies. Uh, and Bob Hope also... Uh did probably hundreds, if not thousands, of appearances on USO tours. Sure. And he almost always used a golf club, a driver, or a three-wood as a prop. So those were huge mor- morale-boosting performances for uh, all the great people serving in the military during that time period. Mm-hmm. And, of course, great friends with Bing Crosby, who we mentioned had the clam bake. Uh, Bob Hope uh, self-disparagingly coined his event the Weenie Roast. You know, it's a shame. It's a shame that that event's no longer a celebrity event. It's a shame that that event has changed names so many times. It's changed golf courses so many times. You know, unfortunately, uh, 2011 was the last time that Bob Hope's name was on that PGA Tour event, and that event, maybe more than any other event on the PGA Tour in the last decade, has really suffered a identity crisis. And maybe with Phil Mickelson being involved and that sort of being his event now. Maybe that'll change in the future, and they can start raising, you know, millions upon millions for all the charities in the desert of California. Well, there is no Bob Hope today, and honestly, out of all these celebrity golfers who we've discussed, the one who's closest, honestly, he doesn't write uh, books yet, is probably Justin Timberlake. And so I've always quipped that uh, Justin Timberlake, and I said it on this podcast, would be a great host of a variety show. Maybe Justin Timberlake can become the host of a golf event, and it can become like Bob Hope. Bob Hope was in his in his 60s when he, he got on board with the Bob Hope Chrysler Classic. 1965, he was 62 years old. So Justin Timberlake is young. Maybe there's time. Okay, so we've gone way too long on this, and let's just go to a hard ending. All right, here's, here's the hard ending. I got a couple last Bob Hope facts, and then we'll end. Bob Hope, again, old Tom Morris award winner, and he was the second to win it. In 1984, after some guy named Arnold Palmer, uh, he was the Golf Writers Gold Tee Award winner. He hit five holes in one in his career uh, and got a silver cup from it uh, for that from Sports Illustrated. The PGA at one point honored him as, quote, one of three men who have done the most for golf. Apparently, I couldn't find the other two. Uh, I'm guessing Arnold Palmer. I don't know who that other one would have been at that point. Maybe Jack. He's in the World Golf Hall of Fame, and I love the description on his plaque. Known by his nose, applauded for his humor, envied for his wit, and loved by millions for his unselfish concern for all beings, Bob Hope is truly a one of a kind. He popularized golf to the unknowing, sponsored it for charity, and played it for fun. Not a golf champion, but a great champion of golf. Those are great words. And as we end this podcast, I'm going to circle back to Justin Timberlake. And all I got for you is bye, 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 everybody. He's Guy Cipriano, not Justin Timberlake. I'm Matt Lowell. 
We'll see you next week back here on the Superintendent Radio Network. Thanks so much for listening. I'll never forget that. He played very, very well. And, uh, you know, I mean, here, here was a man that, that uh, you know, he could, play, he could play pretty well when he wanted to play. What did it feel like to make the incredible shot on the 18th hole? You think that was lucky, didn't you? <laughs> How did you happen to pick golf? Well, look, to begin with, Tony Penner sent me a set of uh, golf clubs for Christmas. Yeah. And then he gave me some lessons. Did he teach you how to swing? No, just how to play golf. <laughs> Occasionally, you'll see a bit of footage where you say no one could ever have known what this foreshadowed. There was this thing on the Mike Douglas show. And Tiger Woods, like at age two and a half, comes out there with, with his father, Earl Woods, who taught him to play golf. And that would be interesting enough, but it so happens that Mike also had Jimmy Stewart and Bob Hope on the same show. You know who this man is here? What's the man? Turn around look at him, Tiger. What is this man, man right name? here? What is his name? <laughs> huh? <laughs> And here's Bob Hope, fascinated by this little kid who already shows tremendous skill in golf. How about a putting contest with Mr. Hope? Can he putt too? Oh, yes. Okay, we'll let him putt first. Why don't you try? <laughs> no, let him go first, all right? Now. All right. You, uh, you got any money? <laughs> You gotta get a real golf ball for it. Would you like to bet about a nickel? You got a nickel? Want to bet a nickel? You got the ball for him, girl? Oh. Watch this. You got any green stamps or anything? Oh! Well, we gotta give you one more try now. Yeah, you get a mulligan. <laughs> Wrap it right in there. Just tap it right in there. It's not too often when somebody gets a one-up them. And I, I, I got him by moving the ball up closer to the hole. Uh, I, I got him pretty good. And uh, I'm certainly no comedian for sure, but um, as, as everyone knows, I can be a little bit of a smart aleck at times. He brought it to mainstream. He brought it to the masses. I think with their affiliation together, Arnold as well as Bob, uh, they did a tremendous job of doing that. Couldn't happen at a better time than popularizing our game.